Hello and welcome to our, our weekly catch up. This week we are with Dr. Michelle Maloney. Hello, Michelle. Hello. Um, I'm very excited to have this conversation with Michelle. So we, I have the good fortune of working with Michelle in the New Economy Network of Australia. And I know that Michelle um, is huge in terms of uh, knowledge and credibility around earth laws and heads up the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. But outside of those uh, brief uh, uh, professional interactions, I haven't got much information about Michelle and, and her worldview. And so this is for me a great opportunity and I hope um, our viewers will enjoy coming uh, with us on this journey. So uh, thank you, Michelle, for joining us. And I'm um, very happy to be here. I'm going to try and um, uh, give you enough uh, rope to hang yourself as Andrew. <laughs> okay. um, so maybe we'll start with Michelle, obviously, um, uh, you've got a new economy framework, it's your professional work. But before you discovered the new economy, where were you in the old economy? Like, how did you get to be in the, uh, at the start of your career? Well, my career is um, joyfully lumpy and many journeys and roller coaster rides. Um, I don't know how far back you want me to go, but in a nutshell, I started life as a very enthusiastic young person, enthusiastic young nature lover. So really my love of the living world has guided pretty much everything I've done professionally. Um, so I guess in terms of my place in the old economy, I was born into the heartland of the old economy. I was born in central western Queensland in sheep country, grew up amongst folks who um, saw nature as something to use and abuse. Um, it's always just there for us to use up. My very lucky and fortunate and privileged to go to university and study law and politics and interesting things and through that developed an interest in governance. So my journey into economic issues really came through um, caring for the environment and everything everything that people were trying to achieve constantly being, um, well, the key barrier or the problem being a growth focused economic mindset. So I think I can't actually recall exactly when I engaged with economic thinking. It's a long time ago now. Um, my engagement in the new economy network itself is much more recent, but certainly I was born and raised in the old economy and probably crawled my way out of it through education and professional life like so many other people, I guess. Well, maybe uh, share with us, uh, you know, what's that feeling or what's that perfect natural uh, scene that sets your heart racing? You know, oh, what is look, it about nature that's got you? I don't know. Look, I, I have a cute story from my childhood, which resonates today. My mum and dad and I and my brother would sit down and watch, you know, David Attenborough documentaries. And I remember many times my brother just saying, would you stop saying everything's cute? So every time I would watch anything, see any animal, particularly animals when I was little, it would just, oh, it's so cute. Everything was cute. So I guess I was always in love with the animated world, you know, the little critters, the big critters, anything. I, I almost can't explain it. I have still to this day, um, the other day I was admiring a blue banded bee in my garden and my daughter said, come on, you hippie, we have to go to school. <laughs> so I think both those comments from family members perhaps captures my essence uh, I really can barely articulate. It's just sheer joy when I see plants and animals. If I discover a new flower or I see a, a creature, particularly 
if you're bushwalking or in the olden days when we traveled um, and you'd see a new animal that you hadn't seen before, that was just, yeah, the most exciting thing for me. Always has been. Doesn't matter if it's a desert, um, snow, jungle, uh, the beach. I don't care. I just want to see animals. <laughs> it's lovely. So, I mean, that natural passion or pa passion for nature as well, I'm guessing that drove the earth laws idea. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. completely. For a novice, try and describe, uh, like myself, bring me up to speed with what is an earth law and how does it differ from a, a, a regular law? Yeah, sure. I think the best way to get your head around it is perhaps to compare what we have in the the many hundreds of years of um, Western style legal systems, particularly the legal system brought to Australia by the colonizers in 1788, that legal system primarily was built upon notions of nature being property. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the whole, the whole idea of individuals owning private property and governments, nation states, uh, religious institutions, really um, basing their values of uh, community wealth on private property ownership. That whole legal structure is very old in our Western constructs of thinking. So earth laws is like an antidote to seeing the living world as just property. Earth laws, whether you come at it from First Nations worldviews, which they often refer to as first laws, uh, or you come at it from a deep ecology point of view, like many of us started some of our professional journey through deep ecology, through something called Earth Jurisprudence by a beautiful deep ecologist and geologian called Thomas Berry. That idea is challenge these massive underpinning structures in Western governance thinking, economics, law, education, religion, uh, challenge the human-centered worldview and the human-centered economic structures that we have not only developed in the European cultures, but then you know, globalized the planet with challenge those notions, really reconnect with both the ancient understanding that we're just one part of a living community, but also the phenomenon of modern 20th and 21st century science, which just goes on and on showing us this deep interconnected uh, web of life that we're so dependent on. So Earth Laws is about shifting from a mindset of human centeredness to being one member of an Earth community with special responsibilities, moral obligations because of our technological capacity for evil. Um, but earth laws uh, can be really quite wonderful because it's a way of engaging as a human being, not just with the, the clunky structures of um, the current Western paradigm, but a much broader um, understanding of what it is to be an earthling, what it is to have ethical responsibilities uh, as people in place. Um, yeah, I could wax lyrical about the different essences of this, but really primarily it's about helping human beings remember what we've always known, that we're just one small, humble creature um, in the big picture of this amazing evolutionary journey uh, throughout the emergence of life on this beautiful planet. So it can be really cool or it can be really boring depending on how you look at it. <laughs> um, uh, it sounds like what David Attenborough would do if he was a lawyer, not a filmmaker. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that would be that would be a nice way to think of what we do. Yeah, what would Uncle David do? Yeah. Um, so I, I guess my question is, I imagine, correctly or not, that Earth Laws is like a, a way of stopping us from uh, doing to ourselves an enormous amount of damage. So I don't want to dwell too long here, 
Um, I've been fortunate enough to see one of your presentations, but it scared the shit out of me. It was just... oh, no, it must have been one of the front-ended with all the negative stuff to inspire people to take the action, yes. Absolutely. 16 graphs, I think Will Stephenson must yeah. have done it. We'll the great acceleration from the 1950s. You, that's the thing that makes the penny drop for everybody. Anyone who says technology will save us, well, actually, it's a bit late for that because technology has got us where we are. But anyway, please, please continue. Talk to me about that. So where do you see us heading if uh, the old economy re remains the conventional and the normal? Where do we mm. end and how quickly are we there? Yeah, look, I'm no expert on climate change scenarios. I obviously watch it diligently and I've worked on and off climate change programs for 25 years, since not the 1990s. Um, I was with a group, the Sustainable Energy Development Authority, back in 1995 when the framing of climate change adaptation hadn't even been developed. We were still looking at mitigating. But in terms of future scenarios, I guess the most bleak and depressing one to me is that humanity continues to cause mass extinctions um, and we continue to take out more and more and more of the, na the, the natural systems that we depend upon and all of the precious plants and animals that we've already made extinct since the industrial revolution escalates. I mean, on a bad day, I'll say to a friend, I just don't want a world where it ends up as humans, fake food and pigeons. And I mean, in a way that's probably a simplistic way to summarize what I'm frightened of. I'm frightened of the worst case scenario, a fundamentally almost dead planet, which is the absolute worst of what climate change and um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions accumulating in this planetary system could lead to. But even before that, um, a system where, you know, just this phenomenal abundance of life on this planet is disrupted to the extent that there really is so little left and even humanity is clinging on to the systems that are left to provide us with food or um, the resources we need. There'd be very little wonder. There'd be very little joy left if it's just all humanity, I think. But that's just my own view. Uh, uh, share it with you. Um, I guess, uh, how does this picture, this earth-ravaged picture, you know, prompt people like yourself to look at the economic framework? What's the link there? Oh, look, the biggest one is, you know, and it's almost a cliche now, but the biggest one is challenging the growth-dominated uh, mindset of neoclassical economics. So this idea that we can have infinite growth on a finite planet and all of the bits and pieces that come with um, neoclassical economic thinking, including um, favouring the private sector, individualism, um, the idea that everything can be commodified bought and owned, uh, and then also the injustice. Because uh, as you know from the work we do within NINA, I mean, NINA's fundamental goals is to try to shift the economic system so that ecological health and social and economic justice are both the foundational principles and the main priorities and objectives of the economic system. Um, because it's the inequities within neoclassical economics, the trickle-up effect, as it's now being reframed, uh, that are also just deeply horrific. The fact that we have this 1%, uh, the Occupy movement was um, very effective in framing that for the first time as an easy way to grasp the sheer inequities on this planet. So um, yeah, I think neoclassical economics, but you know, a lot of people, and I, I talk about this when I give an introduction to earth jurisprudence, if you're looking back at the causes of why we're eating up the world today, 
you can look back to the 1980s, which was the, the burgeoning heyday of neoclassical economics, but that was built on the Great Acceleration coming out of the Second World War. And the corporate creation of the Great Acceleration was built upon um, really um, the ongoing colonization and empire building that the rich had started hundreds of years before as feudal and other you know, elites in the European system. So this strong uh, hierarchical structure that seems to drive certain people, particularly from my cultural heritage um, ancestry, you know, that hierarchical elitist view of using up the earth and using up people for the benefit of a very small number of folks. Um, it's a kind of sickness that I, I really can't comprehend why people would be so unfair to each other or to the creatures around us. Um, well, that, this is going to be a nice uh, opportunity for us to break pace. I'm going to change uh, up our interview. I'm going to give you a magic wand. <laughs> magic wand to create a utopian vision. Oh. Help me by articulating what's there that we would be familiar with today. It's mm -hmm. not there that we need to become familiar with. Okay. Well, I can tell you that I think about this quite a lot. You know, how do we create the systems change we need to have a better ecologically flourishing, more fair society? And perhaps my, my inroad into this is a program that I've been working on for years called Green Prints, which is really just trying to bring together all the good stuff that we have tried to do over the last 50 years and are still trying to do to build better human societies, ones that fit into the natural boundaries of the living world better. So what does that look like? Well, I can give you a snapshot of what it looks like. And if you want, I can work backwards on what we'd have to change to get there. Um, a lot of the inspiration for Green Prince comes from my cultural background, non-Indigenous uh, to the continent, um, but from a place um, through the European and other westernised thinking where systems change is defined by all manner of fun, overcomplicated ways of thinking like systems change built around global footprint analysis and all these other kind of Western industrial ecology, cleaner production, all of that stuff. But... Green Prince is also deeply inspired by the modes of being that existed on this continent for millennia and the governance systems designed and managed through the most stable steady state economy that I think the world's ever seen, which is pre-colonized Australia, the many hundreds of nations across the continent, Aboriginal peoples as they're referred to generically today, which I don't like. Um, but my vision for the future is a place where um, all Australian people are more locally connected, where local governance systems are unique to the place, are unique to the local bioregions or catchments, but I'm a bioregion fan myself, where in this place, and if you imagine a map of Australia and you might know what the Aboriginal map of Australia looks like, they've got their own boundaries that have been drawn for millennia. And the, the non-Indigenous people, we don't need or sh nor should we to appropriate their boundaries. That's their territories. And in the work I do with Mary Graham, this incredible indigenous elder, a Kombu Mary woman, we've talked about pluralism. The future for me in Australia has to be decolonizing um, who we are as non-indigenous people, but becoming as indigenous as we possibly can to this place and these ecosystems and these bioregions. And in terms of governance, because I'm a governance nerd, this would look like a map of Australia 
where all of our bioregions are the guiding kind of force for non-Indigenous people to actually connect to local place and to understand that we are custodians here and now of all of the lovely living systems that are beautiful and, and unique, very, very unique to place, but also critical for us to live. The future utopia would involve um, bioregional or something like it, local governance structures that have very distinct um, legal and economic systems that protect and preserve um, the ecological integrity of the local place, where everything from food and clothing and transport, uh, the supply chains are very, very short. We use as many localised products as we can, but of course we still engage in various forms of trade. Um, and within that future world, there's still a place for government, there's still a place for you know, the kinds of collective responses that those of us um, in modern society are used to. There's still a place for technology, but we get smarter. We make much better choices. Um, we apply values to the consumption and production um, that we're involved with. Um, you know, we would try to have a simple benchmark for everything we make and everything we do. Is this going to contribute to the long-term health of the ecosystems we depend upon and the people? And I have a dream, I have a dream of a citizen's jury at this local level where any time a new developer type person, although they'll be a thing of the past, but anytime anyone wants to do something new in that area, they have to face a citizen's jury and prove to them how their business or innovation or land use change um, would enhance and enrich the living world, not destroy it beyond recognition. Um, I don't know if you want me to go on, but there's some of my ideas and Green Prince is actually about helping people unpick the fabric of what we've done so far and rearrange it to look more like these bioregional spaces and to understand uh, what used to be uh, on the continent before 1788 and what does it take to have healthy functioning bioregions and how much can humans use inside that space um, and will we be, be able to build a long-term steady state society in light of climate change and such. I think we absolutely have the capacity to, and even Will Steffen recently in one of his wonderful talks said, if we can turn the ship around in 10, 15 years, we've got a chance. Um, and I am an apocalyptimist, if nothing else. I know things look gloomy, but I also, I see, I see this future. I see the different things we can do. And I've, me and my teams of folk have done the analysis on the things you unpick and the things you reconnect to make those changes. So I, I, even, even if the future is incredibly gloomy, I'm hanging on to these threads of optimism. Puckle optimist, I think I will grab that. Uh, I stole it off Facebook, so you're welcome to share it. <laughs> you're just starting to talk about some of those seeds of hope that mm -hmm. give you like courage that the utopia could happen. What's some of those that you're seeing Two or three quick examples. Yeah, sure. Look, from the new economy's point of view, I think one of the best things, and you would agree, I'm sure, about working in Nina is literally seeing thousands of people working on really cool initiatives, often at the local level. And it could be anything from local food um, production. Um, you know, food's a huge issue, but everything from uh, young farmers trying to connect with, you know, permaculture and other types of things. Uh, so human responses at the moment is, is, a, is really something to be encouraged about. But often I find that that's not enough. I need to look into nature to see will nature survive us. And I have to say one of the coolest things I'm seeing, and I don't know how successful it will be, but it gives me tremendous hope, is um, information about people who are up on the Great Barrier Reef 
trying to um, grow coral that's a bit, bit more heat resistant, um, trying to uh, regrow some of the little ecosystems that have been bleached and destroyed. Um, in some places they're having success. I don't know, you know what that will mean, but that gives me hope. And also listening to people like Victor Stephenson and other indigenous leaders talk about how their way of caring for country and their way of doing cultural burning maybe if we could do it with much more respect to their knowledge and much more widespread we might be able to avoid some you know some of the more horrific bushfires and the drying out of the land so i think they're just three simple examples the flurry the flourishing food systems um, around the place and all the local responses um, ecological restoration generally and what they're trying to do at the reef and lots of other places and uh, indigenous knowledge and certainly fire management is a huge thing. So they give me hope. And, and I think they're warranted. I had a um, colleague of mine, uh, Dan, who actually helped start the sharing economy. His sister's Rachel Botsman. Oh, cool. Anyway, uh, Dan texted me last night. Have you come across Tyson Yakapura? Uh, yeah. Yakapura. All the way in in London, and he's going. Yeah. Um, you know that guy is real. He's made more sense in five minutes than most people will make in five lifetimes. Yep. And when you're getting that sort of breakthrough with those sorts of uh, sorts of thought leaders on the other side of the world, I think Indigenous economics in Australia could lead the. the, the Absolutely. I mean, quite frankly, the bigger challenge is having breakthroughs with the old white men in charge of the government here. I think there's a lot of thinkers around the world who are very similarly aligned, but making the shift to the governments here, I mean, that is one of the ultimate challenges. We are, someone in the US when I was there two years ago called us the last coal colony on earth. Um, I don't know what to think of that, but it feels a little bit right and depressing. But yeah, we've got some huge, huge challenges here with the system that we live in. Well, we'll uh, start to talk about those challenges and how we can move them. But I'm going to invite Gareth to join us and um, profile our conversation to now. Gareth, are you there? Hi. Yes. Hello. Hello. I'm scrambling to keep up. Hang on a sec. <laughs> I can't wait to see what you've done. Say that now. Hang on. I'm just... Uh, I need to share, don't I? That's why I can't say anything. Okay. Um, let's see how we did. So. Oh, that is so cute. Oh, I've achieved animal status. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, look, I've got a picture of me with David Attenborough. That will make me happy. Oh. <laughs> So, um, yes, talking about way, <laughs> law and politics and a joint love of plants with David Attenborough. <laughs> Sheep farming. So we, then we, we talked a bit about the dystopia. So, you know. Gareth, the, um, Michelle, are you from Western Australia or Western Queensland? Oh, Western Queensland, darling. Oh, I'm sorry. It's totally fine. It's just one letter. There we are. Yeah. Um, and I think you, you talked about you know the future being the dystopia of, of humans, fake food, and, and pigeons. 
<laughs> I feel sorry for the pigeon now. I should have said oil refineries, but I see you've got... <laughs> it's almost an attractive picture to have a pigeon there, isn't it? So, and no joy and no wonder. I think there's, there's potentially a double meaning of no wonder. Mm. Um, mm. And, and then in this, this bit, you know, we talked about, I suppose, the, you know, the, this very, very deep historic biblical and beyond kind of mindset of um, uh, ownership and private property and, you know, the, that underpins that growth-dominated mindset of the economics. Um, and not only that there's the longevity of that viewpoint, but the acceleration that came through after the World, World War, cheap energy and all sorts of things that has led to this, this kind of um, takeoff, particularly with that mindset and sort of technology behind it. But also not only the environmental, but the kind of inequality um, impacts of that in terms of the sort of the concentration of wealth that we're really seeing. And we were yeah, just yeah. finishing up on how do we shift the government and, you know, the last coal colony. Um, um, the sort of hopeful side, you know, talked about really talked about green prints. I couldn't follow it all. So I took that, <laughs> that snapshot and wrote it back. I couldn't type fast enough. Sorry, I but, did talk fast. No, no, that's okay. And I'm, you know, just, um, but, you know, that, that sort of idea of, you know, how do we take models that have been very, very successful locally over a very long time and apply those. So sort of decolonizing what we have and sort of having a bioregional based, um, localized, short distance economy that really asks the question, how does this uh, make, the, make the ecology and the environment better? So how does it survive in this environment, but how does it actually contribute to make it better? And I think that's something that resonates with our, you know, our idea of regenerative um, economy as well. So, yep. um, you know, that, that was great. And, and I think there was, you know, there, there's bits here where you sort of see some of this applying um, that sort of futures thinking, you know, that kind of aspect, that longevity. And you see li little hints of that in, in places like Sweden and even Wales that still thinks about it in terms of future generations. It's not quite ecology, but there's, there's some of that sort of kind of coming in. And being a future generations is about all life, not just human life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's right. If you're doing some future generation, it's hard to do it without considering that you'd hope. Um, and then we just started to talk about some of the seeds of hope. So sort of, you know, talked about you know, lots and lots of people engaging in sort of local community action all across the country through Nina and particularly around food and asking that question, you know, how will nature survive us? So there's, you know, I've got two photographs here, one of, you know, of um, coal burning and the other of that kind of idea of regrowth of the coral. Mm -hmm. Well done. So is there anything big that I've missed? Um... You know, the only thing I would add over into the magic wand space is um, maybe cult. I want pluralism in there because when I, one of my great, I guess, challenges as a young non-Indigenous Aussie years ago was how do we move forward into the future without continuing the insults and assault of colonization of the past? And working with Mary Graham has really really lifted my spirits and shown me one way forward, um, which she advocates for, which is, you know, this pluralism, um, acknowledging that Aboriginal people should be in charge of their own affairs, their own world, their own country, but we all work together and where sort of two systems that operate together, 
um, a simple way to put it that we often joke about is your way, my way, our way. Um, and that's certainly how we're working on a book together. And that's what we're going to talk about because a lot of non-Indigenous people feel terrible guilt about colonisation and, you know, so we should. But at the same time, we really do need to find positive ways to push into the future. Um, so that's something, as always, I'm always thinking about what do we do next and how do we build this better future? And I'm sure many um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have different views. I'm sure some of them would wish we'd just all bugger off back to where we came from. Um, but for those of us who are deeply, passionately, madly in love with this continent and all of its plants and animals and people, we want to be here, but we want to be here in a decolonized way that cares for country and cares for each other. So, so for me, that's a really, it's difficult and I don't think I'll ever solve some of those issues in my own mind while I'm even alive, but it's certainly a, a long-term project. How do we contribute, work together? Yeah. I love the little magic wand, by the way. It's very cute. <laughs> um, Gareth, I might just suggest when you have some time, it's not urgent, but some of those in the top left in the pink could probably move towards the bottom right, the dystopia, as well as the business as usual. So I think the pigeons uh, <laughs> end up with the dystopia in the far so right. I'll, put, I'll put the pigeon down here. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe make that horrible coal picture. That's exactly the future I'm terrified of. So maybe make it one bigger. I'm saying yeah. that as the background up there is business as usual. And the pigeons down there is where we end up. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Look, that that's perfect. Do, do you want to stick around, maybe turn off, um, uh, but... I mean, this is an opportunity if you've got a question for Michelle around the messy middle, we, uh, whether it's technology or policy. Do you want to kick off the messy middle for Michelle? So, you know, the, the idea of the, the, the messy middle is in that sort of blank space of transition, you know, is the contest of ideas and the events and the things that can kind of twist things to the way we want or equally, if you like, the old systems have got a lot to lose, so how does it sort of kind of fight back? So what do you see as the kind of key, maybe leverage points that we can use to move towards um, that utopian future as a starting point? Mm. It's a tough one, um, because to me, there's almost two dimensions in Australia when you're someone like myself and others who are interested in positive social change. On the one hand, we see so much amazing work being done by civil society. And in a way, Nina is, I guess, one of the many efforts where people are forging that solidarity, bringing people together. So that's one of the steps forward. But in that messy middle, how do we take on the large potential of and barrier currently of government um, control of resources? You know, uh, someone like me with a legal background sees, again, from an earth laws point of view, this predominance, this extreme absolute power of mineral resource extraction and oil and petroleum extraction and the power that large corporates and governments have together um, to manage those resources. So despite all the efforts of civil society, you know, this large rolling monolithic path of eating up the world continues. So to me, the messy middle is, you know, building alternatives, creating this alternative world, or I don't think of it as alternative anymore, but all the stuff that Nina and Ayla and environmental um, 
and uh, regenerative folks are doing, that's the future and it's happening already. But how do we uh, pull apart or unpick, as I like to say, the current control that governments and corporations have? Now, that's a, a really big, often very boring, clunky conversation about challenging the power of the Murdoch media, challenging the power of vested interests inside government. I mean, we're really living in a plutocracy where um, it's not that the elites control our every daily action, but they do control resource use in this continent. Um, you know, if, if things were socially just and fair, um, the Adani mine would not be getting to where it is now, let alone getting into the future. So how do we break all of that down? And that's a, that's a, I guess, a mix of many, many, many different actions from um, young politicians coming up who care, uh, progressive change to everything from lobbying laws to greater transparency in decision-making, um, but definitely challenging corporate power. So, and I think maybe a missing ingredient that many of us are trying to tap into is how do we steer the trillions of dollars of philanthropic funds around the globe into really substantial um, mass uh, change, whether that's investment in community-based uh, governance and restorative projects. Um, and I, I really, I feel certainly in my lifetime that we're seeing it, we're seeing a major shift towards those things. But unfortunately at the same time, we're also seeing a mirroring, I often call it the last tantrum of capitalism uh, Trump, to me, is the personification of the final tantrum of capitalism, where the old system's being told no and stop, and you have to put limits. And so it's going absolutely ballistic with its moods and its tempers and its tweets and its opening up national parks for mining. So, you know, as we all know, it's a very strange time to be alive. So I don't know if I answered your question at all. <laughs> I, th I think you did, so you're... you're you're not in favour of the gas-led recovery then? The what, sorry? The gas-led recovery. <laughs> no, I shouldn't laugh, but no. Heinous, heinous industry, heinous. Yeah. Um, thank you for that question, Gareth and, and Michelle. I think you described it. You know, we are living in obscure times. That is the messy middle that we're yeah. in. What are you seeing... Uh, uh, this goes again to the hope, but also, you know, in terms of Tom Dawkins shared with us his model for social change, that something mm -hmm. starts off as niche and then it grows into a tactical advantage. And then it, through a system shock, it becomes system wide and then the new normal. Mm. In terms of what we're seeing, uh, Costa winning the, you know, gardening, uh, uh, gardening show and personality of the year uh, in, in Australia on the Logies. Um, in terms of impact investment being the fastest growth area of investment for uh, private families. Where in the change are we around earth laws and what can we do to move them from a niche into a tactical advantage? into the system-wide change? You know. Yeah, good question. And it actually, the, the beginning of the answer is it depends how you define earth laws. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example about rights of nature. Rights of nature laws are a really direct way of saying nature is not human property. It is a legal entity, or at least has its own legal right to exist, thrive, and evolve. Um, and I can tell you 
that the last eight years since my organisation, AILA, was born and we started and have been really the main organisation kind of slowly, quietly championing, champ making the change. I hate that word. Um, but we've taken our time because rights of nature can be critiqued as um, a rights-based structure that really can be repeating colonising problems. So we've taken our time by having lots of conversations around Australia on this one thread of earth laws. But what's really interesting is that over the last probably four years, we've started to see that shift. Um, we've seen First Nations groups, three or four different um, coalitions of First Nations groups referring to the rights of nature, but in their own way, because they've got their own system and they're not advocating purely for a Western style rights-based change. Um, We've seen last year a member of parliament in Western Australia introduce a rights of nature and future generations bill. Um, Diane Evers, power to her. We worked together on drafting something. We knew it wouldn't get through, but it opened up a conversation and a debate. Um, this year, we saw the Blue Mountains City Council um, after lots of discussions and work with local community groups there uh, with ourselves, but they were the ones who took it to the mayor and said, why don't you at least pass a resolution about rights of nature and so it's a soft entry point into thinking about what earth laws mean for the council because they passed a resolution um, saying that they were going to explore the implications of taking rights of nature into operations and policies and planning which doesn't sound like a major shift but in the material that we've then shared with them we're saying it is a major shift if you look at rights of nature in an earth-centered way of being you have to look at economic growth models and you have to challenge this notion of eating up the world. So as an example that you ask for around earth laws, that's a very clear cut example of how ideas buzz around, don't get much traction. We had a lot of communities interested, but making legal reform change in Australia can be very difficult. We have one of the most stable um, government systems in the world. We don't tend towards revolution. We've got one of the oldest continuous con federal constitutions in the world. Um, so actually making law reform change in this country around radical things like resource, reducing resource um, consumption can be quite difficult. But that's one example of how even one of the toughest ideas for an Australian context is starting to leach way into the mindset. Um, I think it's a really good example. In terms of other ways forward, um, our interest in bioregional ecological governance, I think that will take a while for people to get their head around, um, but folks are open to it. And I have to say, when I, when I kind of dropped the entire scenario on how we would change the legal system in Australia to be reflective of this local bioregional approach and how you can actually do it. If there's a couple of ways we've, we've examined it in detail. Um, you can see people, particularly young lawyers go, ah, oh, that makes sense. You know, it's not just pie in the sky. You've only got to shift a few parameters inside local council uh, lawmaking and boundary making and you've got the beginnings of a very different way forward. You combine that with really excellent progressive councils like the Blue Mountains who are thinking about how do you operate successfully within the constraints, the constraints of continuing a healthy environment. Um, then that's when earth-centered thinking starts to become a bit more viable to folks. So it's, it's often a case of breaking it down to what it really means and then people can kind of get it. If you talk too airy-fairy around some of my work, you're not going to bring everyone with you. So you've got to really discuss what this looks like in practice and how painful it might or might not be. 
And these days, the scenarios most people are worried about with an impending climate change, scenarios of not doing anything are more frightening than scenarios of even significant change. So. Thank you so much for that. That was, that was brilliant. Um, <laughs> Good, thank you. I want to finish up because I'm aware of time. So I'm going to ask you for our listeners, what are the Michelle Maloney, or sorry, Dr. Michelle Maloney, top three priorities uh, that will push towards or cause a utopian vision future as mm. opposed to a dystopian vision outcome? Mm, so what are those interesting. Do you mean for, for just anyone listening or do what I think systems change? Yeah. Uh, well, anybody listening, if they were to take on these three priorities in your estimate, it would lead to the utopia we desire. Yeah. Sure. Um, look, this might sound a bit of a cliche, but you can't underestimate the power of thinking we all need as Australians, but particularly non-Indigenous Australians, um, to really engage with our understanding of local place and decolonize our minds. And that means embrace the place we live in. Um, and the reasons so that's number one, um, think about being a good earthling uh, and connect place. And I don't mean in a superficial, I live here way. I mean, really sit still and pay attention to who lives with you in your neighborhood. And I don't just mean the people. Um, there's a whole bunch of ways you can do that. And ultimately, it's about becoming as Indigenous as possible to Australia. And um, connected to that is absolutely positively um, reach out to Aboriginal friends, read books about the First Nations peoples. Um, if, you're already, if you are a First Nations person, then, um, you know, wherever possible, share with non-Indigenous folks anything about your cultural history, um, because it's only by connecting with each other. And look, Again, it sounds like a cliche, but for non-Indigenous people, we are living with the oldest continuous culture on earth. They have lived on this continent successfully for whatever many millennia, since the dawn of humanity, quite frankly. Um, and we are absolutely being silly and arrogant and missing out if we don't take the time to learn and listen to how we care for country locally. Um, that's number one. Number two is join anything. You can't do it on your own. You've got to change your thinking, but... Um, join anything, whether you want to join the Greens party or you like to protest or you're really keen to lock on, join the uh, Stop Adani movement, join your local land care group, get with other human beings. Um, and the third thing is in whatever way, if do maybe try to engage in the political process, whether you'll just start annoying your local council folks or your local members about what are their environmental policies? What do they see for a sustainable future? Um, I do think that Australians, we're all so reluctant to engage in politics. I personally find the Australian political system really quite vile. And, you know, every second politician is perhaps not even worthy of our time, but it's this system that has the potential for the greatest collective shift. And that's what we all forget is that the Australian governments, the states and the territories and the feds have capacity to um, really create structural change and raise taxes, which is an awesome collective resource. Um, you know, we are really missing out by having incredibly backward government. So they're my three things in a garbled sort of way. Although it's pretty more like seven. I think uh, get localized and as close to indigenous as possible is a great thing. Get out there and get cooperating 
Yep. Join anything. Even if you're shy and you want to stay at home, just sign petitions that other people have done. Join with other people's efforts. Yes. Beautiful. And then the third, um, let's be active uh, in our political process because the mm. uh, uh leading us to do with some trickle up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, their own. Excellent. Absolutely. Michelle, thank you so much for your time. Gareth, can you bring up the final picture and we'll share with Michelle a tour of our conversation graphically. This is great. It feels like my brain has exploded across a page. Well done, Gareth. <laughs> In the nicest possible way. <laughs> that was a bit visual. Woohoo! I think some of my friends will be concerned there's no picture of a wombat. I always talk about wombats. We might need to make the pigeon smaller and the wom a wombat to the right. Oh, no, we don't want that horrible man in there. Oh, thank you. Yes. Aww. Little cuties. Yep, that'll do. That, that's good. Two wombats are better than one. <laughs> oh, so cute. See, I can't help myself. They're so cute. <laughs> Michelle's theory of political change. Fall in love with everything that's cute. Oh, Gareth, you're on mute. I was admiring the wombats and didn't even notice. He's probably not talking. Or he is. Oh, uh, I am. I was just, I couldn't find the right button. There we are. <laughs> well done. All right, so we've we've got wombats. Yes. There's, there's, and we'll put look, we'll put wombats right up in the you know, <laughs> the awesome feature of that. All right, yes. so I know you've got to get three minutes. So we talked about the barriers in the middle here. So government control of resources, large corporates, you know, the lobbying that goes with that. And we have the last tantrum of capital on one side, and on the other side we have this. You know, just kind of trying to sneak sneak around and change things. So we have Nina, we have, you know, the ability to challenge use of resources, you know, the power of the media, lobbying laws. You know, how can, you know, I saw almost these, and I put these together as almost maybe the sort of the antidotes or the the things that can kind of try to start to open up spaces, you know, so you've talked about the, the philanthropic funds, you know, for community-based projects and civil society as, you know, as, as maybe counterbalancing or, you know, kind of wedges that we can we can kind of use. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we, we talked, you know, about the the right of nature laws and the right to survive and thrive. And I think, you know, again, there's, there's threads of that we've had in some other interviews as well. So I think there's an example in New Zealand where a mountain, you know, going a river got its own rights. And so, you know, it's great to see that sort of, some of that being advocated here in a different ways. And you talked about that, um, in terms of, now that was WA, wasn't it? Yes, so you talked about First Nations peoples doing that, but also the WA kind of thing that went up yep. and I didn't get the person's name, so I haven't got their picture. That Diane Evers, yeah. Um, and, you know, but also Blue Mountain City Council. And so there are these, these things starting to move. And, uh, you know, um, separately, there's, a, there's a, a different, sort of slightly different framework that we use sometimes in futures that talks about this, um, this kind of upward movement progressing from sort of the changes in the environment all the way through to constitutional change. And it would be fun at a different point to map some of that, you know, that map some of that with you. Um, and that's the, the scenarios of not doing anything are, are more scary than doing something. 
and then we finish up with you know just a few minutes to go on you know really the top three engaging with local place and really embracing the place that you live in and, and, a, and a, that deeper level of understanding local ecology and culture you know i think it was maybe um I put it so join anything so i've summarized join anything in political processes get stuck in yeah go do something and noting that that's the biggest capacity for social change and i think this is you know, this is a thread that we've we've seen on one hand you know we've seen in across you know multiple things like whether it's brexit or say you know, that there is this sort of um tension at the moment where almost people are not voting or not doing things because they reject some of what's there, but by doing that, we're not actually using the biggest mm. that we all have, which is yeah. making politicians accountable and, and yet it has the biggest capacity for social change. Yeah. And then we have a minute each for each of, each of the koala people. <laughs> Excellent. Can I be a pedant and just ask for you to take one little word out? If you go down to rights of nature, uh, to your left, yeah, and see how it says... Um, own right to survive and thrive. Just give, could you take the word out own? I know what you mean, but it's interesting. Ownership is like the opposite of the rights of nature. So, yeah, the right yes, to survive. I think, and thrive. Yeah. So I was typing as a their own right to survive. I think so. exactly. But if anyone else reads this, then at least that you know nature's right to exist, thrive, evolve. But yeah, well done, well done. Thank you, uh, Gareth. Thank you, Michelle. Um, I'm going to wind up recording now for anybody uh, listening. I hope you'll join us again. Michelle, thank you for your time. Thank you. Yeah.